Uh, I hope that you're finding your way to Genesis chapter 9. While you uh, find your way there, I want to make one quick announcement, and that is that this spring in January, we're kicking off our second semester of our Christian Formation course. This is a path to growth in Christ. It's something that we've developed here at Moberly to help you to grow as a Christian. And uh, there is a sequence of five classes that we've put together to design to help you grow deeper in your walk with Christ. There's a basics class. It's the first class that you take before you can take any of the others. Just an introduction to disciple making for six weeks. And then you can take a Bible overview class and then a Bible interpretation class, and then a spiritual disciplines class, and then a Christian doctrine class. So over the course of those five classes, this is really a foundation that you're building uh, that will help you to to grow uh, deeper in your walk with Christ. We had over 200 people participate in that this fall. And our hope is that eventually every member of Moberly Baptist Church will go through the Christian formation course and get that, that, that good foundation of those five classes. And so the second Wednesday of January, we kick those back off. And uh, we'd love to have you sign up. You can go to moberly.org formation, and uh, you can find out about the schedule and about the details there. You can register for one of those classes uh, at that website. So be sure and, and uh, participate in that. We would love to have you. Well, hopefully you've found your way now to Genesis uh, chapter 9. From our earliest days, we want to be remembered. Uh, we want to make a difference with our lives. We, we want to matter we want someone to know that we were here. In fact, I remember there was a particular season in my life as a kid where I would uh, scratch my name on random objects. Andrew was, W-U-Z, Andrew was here. And if I could find a pen or a little knife, you know, you can go to Houston, Texas and then random park benches and random backyard trees you will find my name there. Why would I do that? Well, I think it's a universal longing of the heart to want to matter, to want someone to know my name. That doesn't go away as we get older. We we want to matter in school. We want to make an impact. We want to be noticed in our jobs. We we hope people will remember us after we're gone. So when we we die, we get buried. Uh, What do we do? We buy a tombstone and, and we put our name on it because we want someone to know we were there. One of the oldest traditions in baseball, uh, for you Red Sox fans, uh, no one? Okay, good. Uh, in Fenway Park, if you go to Fenway Park, one of the oldest traditions in baseball is you can go out to, to the left field, behind the left field wall, and if you play at Fenway, you can write your name, you can write your autograph on the inside of the left field wall, and, and there are thousands, literally thousands of ballplayers' names. We want our name to be remembered. It's a universal longing, and I want to suggest this morning that there are two ways to be remembered. There are two ways for your name to matter. We're going to look this morning at a very familiar passage in Genesis 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. How many of you have ever heard of the story of the Tower of Babel before? Okay, almost every hand in the room. It's very familiar, but I think to really understand what the story of Babel is all about, you need to zoom out a little bit. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to actually start in chapter 9, and I want you to see kind of the big picture and how the story of the Tower of Babel is situated in the book of Genesis, because it is a story that's actually sandwiched between two genealogies. Now, I know that genealogies are your favorite parts of the Bible to study. In fact, somebody said, Pastor, we're doing another genealogy this morning, and so soon. Uh, I don't know, that was a little passive-aggressive right there, but, um, but actually the genealogies in the Bible, yes, they're tempting to skip over, but they're very important. And here we have a story about Babel, but it's actually sandwiched in between two genealogies that focus on the same man. 
And the focus of both of those genealogies is a man named Shem. Let's say that word together because we're going to, you're going to hear it about a hundred times this morning. Shem, okay? Shem, that's the key word here this morning. And I want us to pick back up in chapter 9 where we left off last week because that's where we're introduced to Shem. When you come to the story of Shem, you find that Shem enters the story as Noah exits the scene. Okay, we've just had the story of Noah and the flood, Noah's ark. And Noah's story ends, frankly, in embarrassment. After having been such an important and godly character in the story, I mean, he's described as a righteous man. He's described as a blameless man. He's described as a man who walks with God. I mean, that's a great way to be, have your life described. We see in the, uh, Genesis 6 through 9, he's an obedient man. He does just as God had commanded him. He's a worshipful man. As soon as he gets the ark out of the ark, he builds an altar to focus on the Lord. I mean, Noah is, if you would point to anybody in the Bible and say, that's kind of like a hero character. You would say Noah is a good example of that. And yet, the story of Noah ends very differently. It ends with him drunk, naked, and passed out on the floor of his tent. The reason we're introduced to Noah in that way and have those kind of details included, I mean, look, the, the Bible is nothing if it's not honest. And the Bible doesn't hide the flaws of characters. I, I think that's actually a, an, a encouraging thing. I, I'm thankful that the Bible portrays characters in reality as they actually are. It's an important theme in Genesis that the so-called heroes of the story are imperfect characters who fail a lot. And I find encouragement in that because I fail a lot. And so I think it's important that Noah's story includes this example of shame and failure because it helps protect us from the prideful assumption that once you come to know God, that you somehow become perfect or, or you don't mess up. Folks, we, we're all sinners saved by grace. And we are not picture-perfect people. The church is not full of perfect people. The church is full of sinful people who are forgiven. There's only one hero in the story. We think about the Bible as being a book full of heroes. It's really not. It's a book about one hero who never fails, who is always perfect. It's not Adam. It's not Abel. It's not Noah. It's not Abraham. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. And so let's not idolize our heroes. Amen? We don't want to idolize our heroes. No one should be put on a pedestal. No hero in the Bible, no earthly hero, no spiritual father or mother, no pastor. No one belongs on the pedestal. We better be careful not to climb up onto the pedestal. Only one person belongs there. His name is Jesus. So let's get that straight, all right? So here's what happens. Noah's story ends in failure. If you're writing notes, taking down notes, you can just write over this section, the blessing of Shem, okay? The blessing of Shem. Because in the midst of this shameful thing that happens with Noah... His son Shem does something very honorable, and he gets a blessing as a result of it. So look, uh, pick with, up with me in verse 18 of chapter 9. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, okay? So one of, one of the three sons of Noah, Ham, his most famous descendant is a man named Canaan, who's going to play a very big role in the rest of the Bible's story, the Canaanites. Uh, right, when you hear the word Canaanites, you ought to say, ooh, okay, the Canaanites, Ooh, yeah, they're going to be in conflict with the Israelites a lot. They come from Ham. And these three were Noah's son, sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Now Noah, as a man of the soil, here's the shameful ending to Noah. 
He began by planting a vineyard, and he drank some of the wine, and he became drunk, and he uncovered himself inside his tent. Now Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. And so Shem and Japheth, the other two sons, they take a cloak, and they placed it over both of their shoulders, and they walked backward, right, into their father's tent so they wouldn't see Noah, and they covered their father's nakedness. And their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. So here in, in their dad's most embarrassing moment, right? Ham, what's he do? He runs out and tells his brothers, hey, come look at dad. And the other two brothers, they do what is full of integrity and honor. They know their father is in a shameful situation, so they, they carefully walk backwards so they don't see him in that position. They, they cover him with a blanket. So what does Noah do? Well, it says, when Noah awoke from his drinking, verse 24, and learned what his youngest son, Ham, had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. So notice, it's a curse on Ham, but it's actually really a curse on Ham's descendant. Who was Ham's most famous descendant? Canaan. Thank you. Ooh, right? So this is a generational. Noah is saying, I'm, there's going to be a curse here on your entire family tree. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's servant. Let God extend Japheth. So Shem gets blessed, but now also Japheth gets blessed. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be the servant of Shem. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years and then he died. So what's happening here? Well, this is about the blessing of Shem. Noah blesses his son Shem. By extension, he blesses Japheth as well. And then you come to chapter 10. Now, we're not going to read every verse in chapter 10, but chapter 10 is now a genealogy about Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their descendants. Notice chapter 10 and verse 2, it lists Japheth's sons. Chapter 10, verse 6, it lists Ham's sons. Chapter 10 and verse 21, it lists Shem's sons. Chapter 10 is just evidence here of the fact that God is blessing Shem, Ham, and Japheth. <clears throat> and chapter 10 shows us the evidence of God's blessing and his mercy and his grace in, in at least a couple of ways. First of all, it just shows us chapter 10, which is tracing the descendants of Noah and their descendants. It's showing that Shem, Ham, and Japheth all have children. Those children have children. And you have the nations just repopulating and multiplying and, and peoples are becoming actually entire nations of the earth. And so I think that's in and of itself evidence of God's grace for humanity because in Genesis 6 through 9, God has judged all the nations of the earth. He's poured out wrath on the nations. He's destroyed everyone except for Noah and his family. Now chapter 10, you see the reversal of that where there was destruction, now there's multiplication. There was judgment, now there's repopulation. You see the, the nations of the earth and the peoples of the earth beginning to expand. And that just shows us that God is the God of second chances. Aren't you thankful for that? That there's a new start here. There's a turning of the page. There's a new birth. That's what God is in the business of doing. But there's something else that's very important about chapter 10. Every genealogy in the Bible is there for a reason, okay? And, and usually in the genealogies of the Bible, there's a little detail that's very, very important to notice. In chapter 5, the genealogy there, the one detail that was really important to notice was Enoch. You have a chapter full of death. All these people are dying. But then you have Enoch, a man who walked with God, and he didn't die. 
That's the one little detail that's very important about that genealogy. In chapter 10, here's the important detail. Yes, it's showing us how the nations of the earth are multiplying, how the earth is getting repopulated. Certainly, that's evidence of God's grace. But the key detail to notice here is the order of the names. Notice Japheth is listed first, then Ham, and then Shem. Japheth's sons, then Ham's sons, and then Shem's sons. Now, we know from this passage that that's not their birth order. The birth order, Shem is the oldest. And then you have Japheth. Now, Japheth was probably the favorite son because he was a middle child. I'm a middle child. We're really the cream and the Oreo, the meat and the sandwich. You know, the middle child is always a favorite. Uh, and then it's definitely not the firstborn, right? Can we just say that as middle kids? It's not, definitely not the firstborn. Um, and then the youngest son is Ham. Okay, but here in chapter 10, they're not listed by birth order. They're listed Japheth first, because he's a favorite, right? And then, but then you have Ham, but then the last is Shem. Now, why is that restructured that way? Well, the, it's to prioritize Shem. Shem is the important character in chapter 10. It's the author's way of saying, pay attention to Shem. Why is Shem important? Because in chapter 9, who gets the blessing? Shem, right? It's Shem's family that is the family that receives God's blessing. It's the Shem family tree, by the way, that's going to to be followed for the rest of the story of Genesis. All the other major characters in the story are going to be the descendants of Shem. So what's important right now for understanding the story that we're going to look at in just a moment is the fact that it is Shem who is blessed, all right? So just tuck that away in the back of your mind. It's going to be important. You're going to see Shem's name come up again because you have the Shem family tree in chapter 10. Then chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, you have the story of Babel, and then Chapter 11, verse 10, we're introduced to the family of Shem. Again, look at chapter 11, verse 10. These are the family records of, what's it, what does it say there? Shem. I told you that's the key word of the passage. So do you see the sandwich? You have a Shem family tree in chapter 9, and excuse me, chapter 10. Then you have the story of Babel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And then here comes Shem again. You have the Shem family tree. The, the story of Babel is sandwiched by Shem's family. And we're going to see why that is important here in just a moment. But, but I want you to look now at chapter 11. And I want us to focus in on the Tower of Babel story, okay? And if you're taking notes, you can just write over chapter 11, the building of a name. The building of a name. That's what Babel is about. We've seen that God has blessed the family of Shem. That's what the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 is about. He's actually blessed the entire human race by allowing them to multiply and expand into nations. It's allowed them to repopulate the earth after the flood. Chapter 11, how would you expect people to respond to the grace of chapter 10? Here God is allowing the peoples to multiply again. You would expect that people would respond to God's graciousness. Maybe like Noah responded when he came off the ark. You remember what Noah did when he came off the ark? He built an altar to focus on God. Well, here in chapter 11, the people build something, but it's not an altar to focus on God. It's a tower that focuses on humanity. So let's see what happens in chapter 11. I'll begin reading verse 1. It says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary, and as people migrated eastward. Okay, literally, migrated eastward. Now, why is it important that they're migrating eastward? Well, remember back 
The early, earlier parts of Genesis, you remember when Adam and Eve get expelled from Eden, where they're expelled in what direction? East. You remember when Cain kills his brother Abel and he is sent away, in which direction is he sent? East. Now the people are continuing to migrate eastward. Do you see what ha- what's happening here? The, it's the author's way of showing you that people are moving further and further away from God's presence. Here they continue to go further from Eden. And they found a valley in the land of Shinar and they settled there and they said to each other, come, let's, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. So like Noah, who when he's rescued from the flood, he builds an altar, they also build something. But instead of an altar for worship, they build a tower It's very tall. It's like a skyscraper in the ancient world. They want its top to reach into the sky. Now, this is something that God is going to destroy. He's going to judge this action. Because what we actually see in the text is that this is an example of disobedience. And you may be wondering, what's wrong? What's so wrong with building a tower? I, I, I mean, what's the problem with this? Well, there are little clues in the text here about what's actually happening. Notice, for instance, the emphasis on human effort divorced from dependence on God. Did you notice the language in verses 3 and 4? Let us make. Let us build. Let us make a name. This is an example of humans not being more and more dependent on God, which is what they should have done, like Noah building an altar that's focused on the Lord. This is now, humans have been repopulated. They've multiplied. They've become great. And they say, look at what we can do. We can make bricks. We can build a tower. We can make a name for ourselves. And you get this picture of human effort that's divorced from dependence on God. Now they have become self-dependent. Here's the deal, folks. God doesn't want you to be self-dependent. He wants you to be God-dependent. He doesn't want you to be self-confident. He wants you to be confident in the Lord. And this is an example. One of the reasons this tower is a problem is because it's, a, it's an example of human autonomy, human independence. Look at what we can build. Look at what we can do in our own effort. It's just like Adam and Eve who decide to take the, the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a decision of human autonomy and human independence saying we will live life without reference to God. Here they're going to build a tower, and it's all about what they can build. Notice also this is an example of human effort to reach God, or maybe even to replace God. Notice they say in verse 4, let's build a city and a tower with its top into the sky. Now, literally what they say is let's build a, a tower with its top into, in Hebrew, it's shemayim, which is a fun word to say, but it means heaven. Let's build a tower that is so tall that it reaches to the very abode of God. We will build so high, we humans in our strengths, we humans in our independence, we will build a tower so tall that we can reach into the very throne room. This may be an effort for them through their own human achievement to try to reach God. 
We don't need God to come down to us. We can build our way up to him. Look at what we can do. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can make our own bricks. We can build our own tower. We don't need a God who comes to us. We can reach him. Look at the works of our hands through our own human achievement, through our own effort. We can reach heaven. Folks, the gospel of Jesus tells us you don't have to try to reach heaven because heaven came to reach you. But there might be another possibility here. This may not just be an effort to reach God, but actually it might be an effort to replace God. It may be an assault on heaven. This may be an example of the people at the Tower of Babel saying, we will build and we will reach to the throne room so that we can occupy the throne. God has been dwelling in the throne, but we're gonna reach into the heavens so we can replace God. We will reign, we will rule, we will enter the throne room. We'll build a tower so that we can charge heaven and replace God and we can be the ones who are in control. I was talking with Pastor Gio this week about this text and he said, you know, it kind of looks like a cosmic game of King of the Hill. You remember King of the Hill as a kid? This was before you had technology. You'd go find dirt hills. You know, doesn't that sound fun, kids? You go find a hill of dirt, and it's all about who can climb to the top and stay on top. And the goal is to knock the person off the top and laugh at them as they roll down. Now you're king of the hill. It may be that the Babel story is an example of cosmic king of the hill. Who will be king? We will build and we will replace God, just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who took the, the fruit because they wanted to be as God. That might be what's happening here in Babel. Think of the pride that's represented here. Through our effort, through our achievement, look at what we can build. We can reach the throne room. We can reign from heaven. C.S. Lewis once called pride the complete anti-God state of mind. I will be my own God. Folks, that's, that's the refrain of hell. Why is the tower a problem? Well, it's human effort divorced from divine dependence. It's human effort to reach or replace God. But ultimately, this story is about human effort to build a name and a reputation apart from the blessing of God. Did you notice tucked into verse 4? Verse 4 gives us the why of the tower, the reason that they're building it. Look at what verse 4 says. It says, they, they said, come, let us build. Notice the repetition of let us, let us, let us. Let us make, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. But then look, middle of verse 4, and let us make a name for ourselves. You see, the real reason that they were building the tower, the bottom line for why they're doing what they're doing is to build their own name, to build a monument not for God's glory like Noah did with the, the altar that he built coming out of the ark. Here they're building a monument to their own name, a monument to their own glory. You see, the problem wasn't that they were building a tower. People build towers. We've got great skyscrapers all over the world. There's not a problem with building a tall tower. The problem is building for whose glory? You see, here we see what's really going on in Babel is that they are trying to build for themselves a name. They are constructing a monument to human glory. What they're really doing is not building. What they're really doing is rebelling. They want to have a name that matters. We all want that. We want to say Andrew was here. We want to etch our name on the wall at Fenway. We want a tombstone that has our name. We want to be remembered. Here, they want to be known. They want to be remembered. They want their name 
to matter, but the way that they tried to get their name to matter, to matter was by building this idolatrous project to build that name for themselves. Their reputation mattered more than God's. Their name mattered more than God's. Their fame mattered more than God's. Their renown mattered more than God's. Their importance mattered more than God's. Folks, there is only one name who's so glorious that he's worth building for. And it's not your name and it's not my name. God forbid that we invest our lives into building something to glorify our own name. We, we can do this as a church. God forbid. God forbid that we invest our efforts as a church to make the name of Mobley Baptist Church great. Mobley Baptist Church is temporary. The kingdom is eternal. There's one kingdom. Listen, the book of Hebrews says that every, one day everything will be shaken, but there's going to be one unshakable thing. That's the kingdom of God. It's not any church's name. So let's make sure that, listen, even in a weekend like this where sounds of the season, spectacular choir and orchestra and all the things, let's make sure that we're being careful to point the glory to God. To not take the glory for ourselves. It's not about our name that matters. We can do this as a church. We can do it as a country. We can do it as a family. We can do it as an individual. Where the expenditure of our life is about our own name. Can you imagine living your whole life and one day standing before God and God says, what have you done with your life? And the entirety of your life was spent building a name for yourself. And God says, I, I, I stewarded your life to you. I entrusted you with a life to be used for my name, to be used for my glory. What have you been doing? I've been expecting that you're building this for me. You've been building for yourself, right? We're in the, we're in the season of Christmas. And so in the Bear household right now, every other day we get packages from Amazon that come in the mail. And we're trying to like very carefully hide them from the kids, you know. And they know what they are, you know. And they're trying to get out there and shake them and figure out... So there's this great expectation all month. Our kids see these packages, mysterious packages show up on the front door and then mom and dad whisk them away into their room and then we package them and then we come back and put them under the Christmas tree. And all month long, the kids are expecting that on Christmas morning, the packages are gonna be for them. Imagine though, it's Christmas morning, they wake up, they're so excited to see what has been given to them and package number one opens and it's for mom and dad. Package number two for mom and dad. Package number eight for mom and dad. They get to the last package and it's for mom and dad. The kids wake up and they're like, hey, I thought this was for me. It's really been for you this whole time. I wonder if the Lord will say that to some of us. I thought that you were doing something for me here. I thought that you were giving something to me. God forbid that we see the Lord one day and he says, you've been spending all of this effort on yourself. It's been for you the whole time. As I was praying through this text this week, I became very convicted that I can do this. It's so easy as a pastor to build a name for myself. I started writing down some of the ways I do this. Try to build a name for myself apart from God. When I seek recognition or attention, when my being loved by God is not enough, and so I crave attention or approval of others. When, when I take credit for the success of something for which I'm not responsible, but God is responsible. When, when I flaunt achievements in a way that brings glory and attention to myself. When I am righteous for appearance's sake rather than righteous for God's sake. 
When I idolize success above everything else, I'm, I'm trying to build a name for myself. When, when I'm afraid that you might see me as a failure or might not see me as competent or capable, I'm trying to build a name for myself. When I struggle with the fact that sometimes faithfulness in God's eyes might look like failure in the world's eyes. When I want to be impressive. When I'm jealous of the success or favor that others enjoy. When I want others to think great thoughts about me rather than great thoughts about Jesus. The list goes on. But I can do this. Invest my life in building a name for myself. And the reality is, we can all fall for that trap. God alone is worthy of our worship. God alone. And God will have his glory. God says, I won't share it with another. I will not share my glory with another. So what does God do? Well, look at verses 5 through 9. God begins to disrupt their plans. Let me read verses 5 through 9 and point out a couple of things about it. It says, then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord God said, if they've begun to do this as one people all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. Babel or Babylon, it means confusion. That's what the word means in Hebrew. It means confusion. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So the Lord, the Lord begins to take very intentional steps. He sees humanity building this monument for their own name, and he begins to do some very intentional things. First of all, he comes down. Did you notice that? It says twice in verse 5 and then verse 7, come, let's go down. It says the Lord came down. I think that language is very intentional, the Lord coming down. Because what are the people trying to do? Build a tall tower. But this shows us however tall they build the tower, God is so big, he still has to come down to see it. Here they've built as big of a tower as they can build, and the Lord still has to stoop to see what humans can create. It shows us how big God is. It shows us how small and puny our greatest efforts are. It's like sandcastles in the sand. We spend our whole life building something. You know, I've thought this about politics. You know, you can spend your entire career in politics and you pass one major law and one election can reverse it. A sandcastle in the sand. Here they've built this. This is the best we can do. And God has to stoop to see it. And then he confuses their language. You notice that in verse 7. He confused their language. And then verse 8 He scatters them. Notice the reversal that's happening here. They gather one language, one place. They build a tower. And what does he do? He scatters. They coordinate. They say, let us build, let us make. And he confuses. It's really interesting. Something in Hebrew is for you nerds in the house. Am I the only nerd? Any other nerds in the house? Okay, this is a cool one. In Hebrew, the word let us make And the word bricks are the Hebrew consonants L-B-N. L-B-N. Confuse uses the consonants N-B-L. 
It's the exact reversal of what they've been doing. They've been making, they've been building bricks, and then God reverses it. He confuses. They LBN, he NBLs. So next time you LBN, don't forget, God's going to NBL you. <laughs> Alan Ross says the reversal of the order of the sounds, LBN to NBL, reveals the basic idea of the passage. The construction on earth is answered by destruction from heaven. Men build, God pulls down. God will have his glory. And then notice God gives them a name. They wanted to build a name for themselves and the story ends with God naming them, but not the name you want. They've invested their life to build a name for themselves and then do you see God says, your name will be Babylon. There's an irony in the text. God gives them a name that forevermore in the Bible will be associated with rebellion. Babylon. Babylon comes to stand throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as sort of the emblem of sin and shame. Emblem of rebellion. Listen to how Babylon in the book of Revelation is described. In chapter 17, verse 5, on her head was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Look at chapter 18 and verse 2. He called out in a mighty voice, it has fallen. Babylon, the great, has fallen. She has become a home for demons. How would you like for your house to be described that way? A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. This is how God views Babylon. He looks at this human effort and he says, this is your name. You'll be called Babylon. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. They wanted a name and they got one. This is what happens when you try to build a name for yourself. You become a citizen of the city of Babylon. But that's not how the text ends. It ends not with the building of a name, but with the bestowing of a name. That's the last section I want you to see here. Because remember I told you this is a story sandwiched by two genealogies. A genealogy focused on the family of Shem, chapter 10. Then you have the story of Babel where they're trying to build a name for themselves. And then chapter 11, verse 10, where does the author go? He goes back to Shem. These are the family records of Shem, verse 10. What's going on here? Why is the author repeating this? Why is he coming back to this? Well, I told you that understanding the genealogies is the key to understanding the story. The key to understanding this entire stretch of text is to understand the meaning of the name Shem. Can we say Shem together again? I told you we were going to say it like a hundred times. Shem. You know what Shem means in Hebrew? Name. Name. Shem means name. This is how we learned to remember it in Hebrew class in college. Don't bring shame on your name. Shem means name. So here's the flow in Hebrew from chapter 10 to chapter 11. God blesses Shem. The people try to build a Shem for themselves. God gives them a Shem, Babylon. But then you have a reminder of the name that he had blessed, the Shem that he had blessed. 
Chapter 11, verse 10 is a reminder that you don't have to build a name for yourself because God has already blessed a name. It would be the family of Shem that would be blessed. Now, here's the cool thing. Shem, his family story is what's traced throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. And what you start to find in the rest of chapter 11 is the descendants of Shem, the name (laughs) that God had blessed. One of his descendants is a man named Terah. We're going to learn about him next Sunday. But Terah had several children, and the most famous of his children was a man named Abraham, Father Abraham. Abraham's story is going to take center stage beginning in chapter 12, but chapter 12 begins with God blessing Abraham, just like he blessed Shem. And here's what God, here's how God blesses Abraham. Look at chapter 12 and verse 2. To Abraham, the son of Shem, the Shem that God had blessed, the name that God had blessed, he says to Abraham, Chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your Shem great. And you will be a blessing. I told you it would be Shem's family that would be blessed. It would be Shem's descendant, Abraham. And God says, listen, you don't have to build a name for yourself. I've bestowed a name upon you. I'll make your name great. That would happen with Abraham. He'd have many descendants, many of the sands of the seashore. This would be God's blessed people, the Israelites. His name would be made great. Abraham's name would be made made great for the rest of the Old Testament. When you talk about the God of Israel, you're going to talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will have a great name. God fulfills his promise to make his name great. But here's how great his name will be. You don't find out how great Abraham's name will be until you get to your New Testament. But in the very first verse of the first chapter, the first book of your New Testament, you see how great Abraham's name will be because Matthew 1 begins with another genealogy. This one, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His name is Jesus. Jesus, the son of Abraham, would receive a Shem, Above every other Shem. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. He has the name above every other name, so that at the Shem of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Folks, you don't need to build a name for yourself. God has already blessed a name, He's blessed the name of Jesus. And the way to really matter in this life, the way to have your name remembered is not by building a monument to your own glory. It's by being found in the name that is above every other name. It's by being found in Christ. Amen? And here's a cool thing. Here's how I'm going to end this morning. I want you to go all the way to to the book of Revelation, the last book of your Bible. Because when you're in Jesus, he gives you a name that matters as well. Look at Revelation And I want to just point out a couple of verses here. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation are are seven letters to seven churches. Kind of like seven brides for seven brothers. These are the seven letters to the seven churches. And at the end of each of these letters, there's a blessing. Listen to what it says to the church at Pergamum. In chapter 2 and verse 17, let everyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who overcomes. 
I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new Shem, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know, when you come to know Jesus, you get a new name. Look at chapter 3. The church at uh, Sardis, chapter 3 and verse 5. In the same way, to the one who overcomes, he will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his shim from the book of life. But I will acknowledge his shim before my Father and before his angels. You want to have a name that won't be erased from the book of life? You've got to come to Jesus. You want your name to be acknowledged before the Father? You've got to be found in Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, you'll have a name that won't ever be erased. You'll have a name that is acknowledged by the Son to the Father. Check this out, chapter 3 and verse 12, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. To the one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. That blows my mind. And he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. You see what's happening in Revelation? If you follow Jesus, you get a new name. Your name will never be erased. Your name will be acknowledged before the Father. You'll have a new name written on you. The name will be the name of God, the name of the city of God. Jesus says, you'll have my new name written on you. If you're in Jesus, the one who has the name above every other name. The way to have a name, folks, that matters is not by what you build, but by what God bestows through Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you get to have what Jesus has. A name that matters. Amy and I used to live in Amarillo with our kids. And in Amarillo at the airport, there's a, right next, right adjacent to the airport is a Bell facility where they build uh, ospreys and other really cool things. It's top secret. Uh, you can't get in. There's guards and security and fences and barbed wire and moats and alligators and the whole bit. And every time you go to the airport, there's always some kind of cool aircraft there. There's, there's jets, there's helicopters, there's experimental aircraft. We lived not far from the airport. We'd see these alien-looking things flying over our neighborhood all the time. We really don't know everything that they built in that Bell facility, but you couldn't get in. I tried. I tried to beg, borrow, and plead my way to get a tour. I thought it'd be the coolest thing to be able to tour the Bell factory. I couldn't. One of our interns, though, her dad works at Bell. So I thought, okay, here's my in, you know? It didn't work. Okay, I never did get to see, get into the Bell factory. But one day a year, if you had a relative who worked at Bell, there was family day. And you got a special pass where you could go in and see where your relative worked. You got access to what they had access to by virtue of your relation. And you see, that's exactly what happens when we come into union with Christ. It's by virtue of our relationship with him that we have access to what he has access to. It's by virtue of us knowing the one who has the name above every other name that we receive a name as well. Amen? Amen. I invite you to bow with me. And if you're here today and you have been expending your life in the building of your own name, Maybe today the Lord would just be tapping on your shoulder to say, stop. 
stop. Don't make me disrupt what you're doing. You stop. You, you stop building a name for yourself. Instead, devote your life to the one who has the name above every other name. That's how you can truly count in this life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you are invited to come to know him and to receive a name that will matter for it, not just for this life, but the life to come. You can be found in Christ. You can receive the name of God. You can have your name never erased from the book of life, acknowledged before the Father if you'll come to Jesus. If you're that person today and you just say, I need to come to know Jesus in that way, we would love to talk with you about that. At the end of the service, I'll be in the hospitality room. Would love to talk with you. There will be people in the lobby, pastors and ministers, who'd love to talk with you about that. There will be ministers right up here at the front after the service. If you just want to come forward and say, I need to know the one who has the name above every name, we would love to talk with you about that. If you know Jesus, let's invest our life, not in building, but in receiving the name that's been bestowed and building for God's glory. Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, we might receive what you have bestowed that any building that we do with our life would not be for us, but for you. For to you alone belongs the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.